conversation on how our sexuality, gender, race, faith, and ability shape our sexual experiences and identities as queer people. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, Bonnie. We're so happy to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what makes you fabulous? Thanks for having me. Um, Well, I guess I would describe myself as a transgender, queer, drag artist, a spiritual drag artist, um, and something that makes me fabulous. Um, I really believe that my trans experience is a spiritual one. And, uh, I love that. Uh, I love that too. I love that too. And we don't, uh, I think hear that perspective enough. I know you're not alone in that experience, but I don't think it's something that kind of the media or um, a lot of outlets really get to cover very much. So that's why I'm so excited that you are with us today. Um, So I kind of want to get a little bit of the background story on how you got to that point, right? Because you didn't just wake up and say, here I am embracing the religious experience of transness. Um, It definitely probably had a number of steps along the way. And so, like, I know for myself, I grew up between Baptist and Catholic families. I had both. A lot of people tell stories about, like, oh, yeah, I grew up Baptist or, oh, I grew up with Catholic family and it was so damaging to my queerness. Um, But I got both. And, like, I knew um, what being gay was growing up because my Southern Baptist grandmother was very vocal about how terrible it was. So I always knew what that word meant. But in the completely wrong context. Um, and I know that that, you know, made my coming out journey much longer and harder than it needed to be. Um, so I was curious as to, yeah, what was your growing up years like? What, what did religion mean to you growing up? Um, and what did you know about transness or queerness in that context? Yeah, Um yeah, so I grew up in a small town in Idaho, um, a town less than 3,000 people. Um, my family weren't church-going folk, um, but I was. Um, I had an aunt who took me to church when I was little. And uh, church was a place that I um, I could escape into. It was a place in which I felt like I could just be. I didn't feel like I had to be something I wasn't necessarily, at least when I was younger, um, when I at home, I was always a very effeminate boy at that time. And, um, I, and my dad didn't like that about me. So, yeah, so I, I guess I had a really hard time, um, feeling comfortable because I was always getting corrected about the way that I was sitting or standing or speaking. And it, it just made me really, um, I don't know, really, uh, I was really sensitive to it and really just kind of like, um, almost kind of I don't know if paralyzed with it but just very um self-aware I I guess like I don't know what's the word I'm trying to think of (laughs) but um so church was a place that I felt like I could just go and be 
um, without, you know, I don't know. I just felt uh, like it was a place I could fall into. Um, as far as like queerness or gayness, you know, um, in my, like growing up, like socially, and I think culturally, like the thing I heard about gay people, it was never a positive thing. Um, it was always seen as a negative thing or a derogatory comment. Um, and then in church, it just never was talked about. Like, I don't ever recall them ever talking about it. And then I never saw, I never saw gay people in church and I never heard of any sort of relationship except for with a man and a woman and marriage and kids. And so I, I think as I got older, you know, I can look back and see that the church didn't necessarily tell me that I couldn't be who I was, I think, but it didn't, it didn't show me that I could be that like a person like me could exist. So I think I was searching in a lot of ways of like, I couldn't see myself in the world. I knew I was different, but I didn't know how, I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know how that presented. And then I also felt like I wasn't in a environment in which I could really even explore, um, explore that expression, I guess. Yes. No, that that's, that's such a relatable experience. Um, and I think especially even, even like the parent part of wanting your child to quote unquote, be normal, right. Or fit in and being one. Yes. It's, it's scary. It's controlling, but also I think a lot of parents in that place, and I'm not speaking for your father either way, but they have love at the core of that, right? They're like, I'm scared for my kid. I don't know why they're so different, right? And they don't have tools or frameworks to say, oh, well, this is fine because gender is a spectrum. <laughs> you know, that's not maybe something they've ever heard before. Um, so I'm curious as to you finding this home in faith communities, but you're also not seeing anyone that might fit who you want to um, be or who you are inside. Um, how did being involved in a religious community and, and kind of a biblical world perspective inform your coming out process and experience? Um, yeah. And, and I know that my, I know it was coming from my dad, like, I think from a space of love. And like I said, I don't even know if he was super aware of what, what was, what he was doing, um, because I really wasn't aware of it. I didn't, I couldn't label it that until later on in life. But, um, when it came to my, I guess, coming out, if you will, um, I was 19, uh, well, I was 20 when I came out and I came out because a girlfriend dumped me because I wouldn't have sex with her. And, um, I really cared about her a lot and she was a very dear friend of mine and she was so hurt by the experience that I was like, this is not okay. Like, it's not okay for me to, to harm some, to her, you know, I hurt her. And so I didn't know really what gay was. I actually had been uh, with, like I had been with the man, um, but I hadn't, um, I, I just hadn't labeled it anything, I guess. Um, I actually thought that my, I almost thought it was like something like, I felt like it was really wrong. I was, I felt like I was, you know, because of the language I had, you know, I labeled it as like, I was like demon possessed or the devil had a hold on me or like that sort of language, which seems wild, but because no one ever talked with me about it and no one ever, you know, like I just didn't have any context for it. So um, once she like left me, I was like, you know, you're, you're gay. 
like figure this out. So I got a job at a gay bar to learn how to be gay um, because I had never, I'd never been around gay people, you know, and I was living in Phoenix, Arizona at the time. Um, and then um, right after that, I, after I kind of decided for myself or came to the understanding of myself that, Hey, you're gay. Like, what does this mean? Um, then I was diagnosed with HIV um, and that, uh, that pushed me out of the closet. And um, I wanted to go, I was really involved in my church at that time. Again, church was still a very safe and special place for me. Um, I was now a young adult and I was, I had adult friends in church and, but my sexuality was not something that was ever discussed or talked about. And then I found out I had HIV and I wanted to go to them. And I wanted to be able to share that with them and have them hold me and me cry with them. And I, I didn't think that they could handle it. Like they could hold it. I felt like I would be judged or I would have to come out. And then by that point in time, I just felt again, I felt like it wasn't okay somehow. Like I felt like church, church told me it wasn't okay, but I kind of felt like God, God, God understood and God was good with me. And I just didn't know how to, I didn't understand it for myself yet but I did believe that God did. And that at some point in time, I, I might, um, understand too. So I left, I had to leave, I left church at that point in time. And so I lost my safe place. I lost the place that I landed whenever I just needed to be, you know, and, um, it was a, a really huge, um, blow to, to myself in a, in a very difficult time. You know, I just was diagnosed with HIV and, um, thought I was going to die. And then, yeah, it was just a lot of kind of a lot kind of going on. And I think there was a part of me that felt like I had messed up, like I had made a mistake. And because of that, you know, I got HIV and I was going to die young and I wasn't going to be able to be the awesome person. I always thought I was, and my parents raised me to be, um, yeah, sorry to, I felt like that's a little long, long winded answer. No, no, that's, that's a perfect answer. That's a perfect answer. It's, um, I think you answered that question very comprehensively because I think there's so many intersections of that experience, right? It's having this safe space, loving that, loving faith, loving God, and then feeling like, well, if I'm going to be out and I'm going to accept who I am, I'm going to have to make a choice. Right. There's not, I think for so many of us, a clear, oh, wait, but I can do both. I can find faith communities that do um, affirm who I am and do include me and do see my experience not as something they just have to tolerate, but something to be celebrated. Um, And I think so many people are hungry for that. But again, that's just not something they're going to easily find. You can't just necessarily in every city in America, Google open and affirming churches, you know, there, there may not be many uh, available or any at all. So you leave that church, you're now living with the reality of being out kind of on your own. Like you said, learning what it means to be uh, part of the queer community and dealing with this new diagnosis. How, how did you kind of move from that space to being someone who saw your identity and your experience as holy, as a gift from God, as something that you really could blend with your faith? Yeah, that that took a little while for me to get to that space. I think for a long time, I believed that God could love me anyway. 
you know, like that maybe me being gay was wrong and sinful, but I couldn't, I, I knew I couldn't not, not be like, I couldn't not be gay. I couldn't not be who I was, but God, I felt like God still understood me and God loved me anyway. Cause I got a vision, like a vision. I don't know. That seems weird, but I saw Jesus his face on my wall and it was just in a texture one night. And, um, I usually sleep with the light, like a blue light on in my room. Cause I'm scared of the dark in my twenties. And so, um, in the wall, I saw Jesus's face that it was the, the white Jesus, the Jesus I grew up in, but you know, that's what I knew at that time. And, um, but Jesus was crying and, um, I then got some words and I wrote them down in the dark. And then that next morning I got up and I read the words and it was basically kind of this thing, like, God, where were you? Like, where were you to steer me from that danger? You know, like if I'm, if this is like bad and wrong, where were you? Why didn't you help me? And, and I just got the message that like, it's like, I don't need it. That's not, it's not a danger. I don't need to help you. And the reason why I'm crying is because you're so tortured and sad about something that you don't need to be, you know? And so God was hurting because I was hurting, not because of what I was doing or not doing, but just because I was so tortured. Um, I was just so tortured. I was torturing myself and God was like, stop it. Like, you don't need, like, girl, don't. (laughs) I I love that so much. I mean, I remember hearing a lot growing up and I still think that it's a powerful image of, of Christ crying over, um, you know, wrong in the world. Right. But a lot of times in church, you're told, Oh, it's because you're lustful or because you have bad thoughts or because you do these different things that you're making Jesus cry instead of maybe Jesus cries over homophobia and transphobia and racism and ableism and all these other things that I personally have come to very much believe. Yes, that's, that's what breaks God's heart. Um, and so that's such a powerful vision to have and, and words to receive. So, so you have this vision and then kind of walk me to the point where now you are a queer chaplain. I love that that is, you know, your handle on Instagram. It's so easy to connect with that. Yeah. How did you get from that place to this place where you are now able to share a lot of this wisdom and gift with others? Yeah. Um, well, so I kind of got that, um, that message, if you will. So I kind of kept on going, but, um, a lot happened, you know, I, um, church in a lot of ways softened the blow of life for me, I think. And life started to happen even more with HIV. And I didn't have that thing to, to hold me and help me through, um, through difficult times. So drugs and alcohol is something that I landed in. And I found a lot of um, freedom and a lot of ability to just be and exist um, in with drugs and alcohol. I feel like in a lot of ways, they softened the blow of life and they helped me live a life and a better life than I could have on my own. Um, like with, you know, eventually it began to kind of take over my life and it began to, to, to be less helpful. Um, uh, so I ended up having to, to, so I ended up not using drugs and alcohol at around the age of 29. At that point, I was living back in Idaho. I was running an HIV AIDS organization that I had started when I was 24. Um, and I had just left a marriage and, um, I just woke up one morning and just was like, Oh, you know, I'd realized that my life running the organization and doing what I did was like so much bigger than me. 
And it was just so much bigger than me that I couldn't handle it. I, like I couldn't, um, I couldn't be with it, I guess, you know, not in the way that I was. And so I had to kind of like cut some distractions out of my life, which were drugs and alcohol. And, um, I ended up going to a recovery meeting where I heard queer people talk about God and they didn't, um, like they, they said it and I kind of believed them because I had come to have such a, like, I couldn't, I didn't know those two things could exist. Um, and once I heard it, I was like, Ooh, I want that. Like, I want to know how that, how that works. And I think me getting sober was really more about me wanting me needing to find God and need, me needing to find spiritual, like a spirit relation with my spirit um, that I'd been severed from, from so, for, for so long. And so um, getting into recovery really kind of opened up this idea of having God in my life again. And the God that I had that I came to rely on, um, which I never had a reliance on God before, or that, so I came to rely on a higher power to help me be into my, like, and basically to kind of like increase my capacity to be in life in the way that I felt like I wanted to be and could be. And I couldn't do that without God. I realized that I needed something outside of myself to really um, keep me up and lifted and, and to move me forward in that. And so it was not the God in church. Um, it was some other sort of higher power. Most of the time I just hoped to God it was there. Um, some of the times I just felt like I was just pretending. Um, but even when I was pretending and believing, I started having these awesome results in my life. And I was like, you know what, like, even if it's all like shit and it's all BS and it like, it, it's not real. Like, I don't care because the effect that it's having on me and having on my life is like, is great. And so, um, that's really what kind of like started my spiritual journey. Eventually I did land in church. I was, uh, setting up an HIV testing location within the church mm -hmm. and, um, I got there late or something and I ended up having to sit through the, um, the sermon and there was this young gay man who was a recovering addict and he was the preacher and he was sharing and i felt like he was speaking to directly to me like i felt like it was you know how like there, you have those moments when you just feel like like you couldn't have orchestrated it but it feels like something orchestrated it like just for you and i was just like bawling and crying and i'm like next to this person who I'm like, I'm there for work and I'm just like bawling. Um, and, uh, after that, I, um, I found myself in that church every week for many, many months. And I just went and I cried and I cried and I cried, but I couldn't not go, you know, and I needed, it was really great because it was a Christian place. It was a place that reminded me of the church that I grew up in, but I could be queer as fuck. And they not only like thought that was okay, like they celebrated it, you know, eventually I was able to serve communion and I was able to just uh, host small groups at my house. And, um, and eventually I was able to take like a, a chap a lay chaplaincy training. Um, and that's kind of where the chaplaincy came for me. And I um, did a chaplaincy training, chaplain training, um, and I wanted to work outside of church um, outside of the church. And I worked in like, um, like, uh, H like I, I worked in a house for people who were 
um, dealing with HIV and um, homelessness and uh, addiction. And so that's, so a lot of my um, chaplaincy was kind of showing up um, outside of church with people, um, I guess people who held a lot of the same um, challenges that I had, but I was kind of on the other side of it. It's such a beautiful story about, I think one of the things I, I connect to in that, that narrative is the power of seeing people like you who are representing a faith community, right? You said you see this pastor mm-hmm. who's speaking directly to your experience and, you know, connects to you as someone who's in the community, who's, you know, part of, part of your lived experience. And I think a lot of faith communities downplay that on multiple levels. Right. They're like, oh, well, they can be a pastor to anyone. It doesn't matter what people look like or what identities they have. And it's like, no, it matters a lot. (laughs) It matters a lot because for most of our kind of history in the United States, we've seen certain people be the leaders in faith communities over and over again. And other people maybe be on the sidelines, if not invisible, if not excluded completely. Um, And and to yeah, have that have that visible presence is so profound. And so now your work as a chaplain, tell us a little bit about that and these interviews you're doing with the drag community and and maybe some of those experiences that you're having with people who are having that same experience, who are like, wait, I can fully be me and not have to sideline it, not have to be in the background, not have to make, you know, my faith something I downplay. No, I can fully be embraced by God and church and all of these things as I am. Yeah. Uh, so as a queer chaplain, I, you know, chaplaincy in my understanding is, is being with people around death and dying. Um, but it's more like in the physical and the body. And for me, I feel called to be with people around death and dying to self, which a lot of times is around identities. So whether that's their, you know, realizing that they're an addict or their, their sexual orientation or their gender identities, or like, there's so many things that we kind of die to one way that we used to see things and we now see ourselves differently. And so I had a lot of those experiences where I wasn't allowed to invite God or spirituality or my spirit into that experience. And so a lot of what I want to do is help people bring their own concept of spirituality and their spirit into whatever kind of death and dying process that they're going through around identity or whatever. And so uh, part of that, I think, is so. And I like the fact that chaplains, it's not about my spirituality. It's about your spirituality and your beliefs. And so I love that because. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's right. You like, I, I, I don't, I don't half the time. I don't even trust my own understanding. So how am I going to tell somebody else? Right. And so I love, and also what it does for me is hearing other people talk about their understandings and their spirituality and their relationship with themselves and God and others or whatever divinity or that they want to call it or not call it. Like it expands my like it makes my God bigger um, because my understanding of God eventually isn't enough. And I like in time, the way that I thought it was, I come to understand differently. And my God has to 
changed and my God has to be bigger or else, you know, I, I don't know, like it just has to. And so working with other people, um, me see the bigness and the connectedness um, of, of all of us. So one of the reasons why I interview drag artists is because I think one, I think the mainstream is kind of like eating up and consuming lots of drag, but it's kind of a certain narrative and it's a certain type of drag. And it's still kind of, I think, just a couple dimensions of an individual. They're not not really humans maybe attached to it and, and they're not spiritual creatures maybe. And so what I wanted to do was, uh, interview drag artists about their spirituality so they could kind of like, I don't know, like to show that they exist, like spirituality exists within a drag artist. And in talking with drag artists around their spirituality, a lot of times sexuality, gender identity, um, those sorts of things kind of come up as part of that. And I think a lot of folks um, were not integrated we're not very integrated. We're like spirit. We do spiritual shit over here. We do sexual shit over. Can I say, I can say shit, right? We do sexual stuff over here. <laughs> we do, you know, and, and, uh, I, I've a big part of my personal goal is like, I want to, um, I want to be and bring all of who I am wherever I am. Um, so that, you know, like, I don't want to feel like I have to leave a part of myself at the door or, you know, because like, because like, if I choose to do that, that's, that's one thing. But if I feel like I have to do that because it's what it says before you enter the door, or if I'm scared uh, to share it, or I don't feel I'm safe. um, And those are real things to like, think about, but um, I really want to get to a space in which I can express all of who I am, wherever I am. Um, Even if I'm scared, like I, um, and so I really want to help people do that for themselves as well and to kind of integrate that. So when I interview drag artists, my goal is to help lace their narrative with a spiritual thread. Cause I think a lot of folks haven't integrated those two things. And so being able to talk about them at the same time, I think can allow folks to, um, to, to become more integrated and to fuse those things together. And so it's a process for the drag artists, but it's also, an opportunity for other folks to witness that and for them potentially to see themselves within that narrative as well. Ah, yes. I love that so much. I love that so, so much because, and I remember when we, we first connected, we talked about this a little bit, you know, that's, that's been very much my kind of, I guess where I felt pulled to over the past couple of years. Um, you know, I love being a sexologist and I've often said it's my ministry, but I was like, well, you know, that's just my personal interpretation. Everyone else would think that was weird. (laughs) And now I'm going to seminary in the fall, unfortunately to a seminary that like totally gets that. And is like, of course, duh, (laughs) makes sense to us. And, and I feel very called to being a chaplain and especially because of what you're saying, where it is this interfaith experience of, like really being a service, really saying, where are you and what do you need and how do you understand this? And just how can I help you in that experience? And how can I facilitate some kind of um, new way or enhanced way of communing with God, however, however that looks for that person? It's so important, I think, especially in regards to sexuality. You know, we don't see a lot of 
chaplains making that the focus of what they do. And I think there's an ever expanding need for it. Um, so if somebody is in a place where they're like, this all sounds good, love this podcast, love this discussion, but I have no idea where to start. How do I find any resources on this? How do I find community around this? How do I begin to go on this journey where I can feel at peace with maybe identifying as a person of faith again and being my fully queer self? Um, do you have any advice for starting that journey? Mm, mm, it's such a, it's, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a challenging thing. And I think that's a lot of why, um, I want to, I like, I feel like that's a lot of my role in some ways is to help is help people get to those spaces and places in which they can really cultivate and be held and begin to express and explore more of who they are in like a safe place. And so I think part of that too, is like, we all have a different I think we're all going to have our own way of, of doing that. You know, for me, it was really important for me to be able to go to a space that had hurt me, um, that was familiar, but loved, loved me now. And like, like, so I think there was a big part of me because I don't necessarily identify as Christian. Um, but because that was my damage and my hurt, it was really helpful for me to get to a space in which I knew Jesus loved me, you know? <laughs> um, and so so, and then I have the choice to do with her, whatever I want, you know, uh, which Jesus, her, you know, whatever I want. So, um, so I think part of it is, I think being able to, I think community is a big part of that. It can be a big part of that is having at least even one person who can kind of like, who you can reveal yourself to, or have some of those conversations to, and, um, eventually maybe being able to talk to somebody who is a little bit further along the process than you are. Um, sometimes that might be a preacher or that might be, you know, um, a family member or, you know, who knows what it could be, who it could be. Um, and so I think it's part of just, for me, knowing that it exists was powerful. And that's a lot of what I try to do and why I try to interview so many different people is because it was, I lacked the imagination to see how like beautiful and amazing that God wanted me to be because I hadn't seen it. I could only be what I see, I guess. Like for some reason I needed to know that, I don't know, because I still feel like I'm the only one like me, which in some ways I am, but it was helpful just to see that I could exist beyond where I was at because I feel like we're all told how we can exist and what our boundaries are and how far we can go. And um, being able to see other folks exist differently kind of gave me permission, if you will. Um, I don't know if permission is the right word, but it just kind of opened up that space for, for me to find myself, um, to find myself in. I'm losing my train no, of thought. No, one of my favorite quotes <laughs> is you can't be what you can't see. You know, it's, it is really hard to imagine, like, mm. am I just making this up? This is a possibility until you start to see other people and you're like, oh, mm. no, like I can be like that. I, I wouldn't be the only one. Maybe I'd be the second, but I wouldn't be the only one. And that's, that's so powerful. I also wanted to ask you, this might be an episode that people share also with their family members or their pastors or their friends who are 
you know, not queer in any way and like want to be supportive, but it sounds scary and they don't want to do the wrong thing. And maybe they're sharing this episode to be like, see family and friends, like this is possible. I can be both. Do you have kind of a message to share with those folks as well? All right. So, um, I think it's, I think the way, I think a lot of, um, I feel like the only thing I have to offer is my experience. Um, I don't know what's best for other people to do or how they can address any situation. And I think the biggest thing is, is it's really harmful to go into every situation and and approach every person, I think in the same way. Um, I do have an experience with my aunt who, she was my hero. She was my connection to God. And a lot of times when I was younger and my spirituality was younger, I think she was, she was the representation of God. She, she was the voice of God for me, you know, in a lot of ways. And, um, that's not fair to her, but that's where I was at. And so when she didn't, um, accept my sexuality and all that, it was like, she was God saying, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not good with you. And so me and my aunt went 20 years without being in relationship with each other in a very deep way. And, um, we, a couple years ago, we were able to begin to kind of like bring that relationship back together. And in talking with her, her and I have a podcast called splintered grace, and we share our story about how we, um, restored our relationship and how we continue to stay in relationship with her as a conservative Christian um, and me as a transgender queer drag artist. Um, And so we're kind of model what it's like to have those difficult conversations um, and still be in relationship with other. But I think, you know, she had to stop praying for me to not be the way that I am. You know, she had to pray for her to change, not for me to change. And she had to just get to a space in her own understanding where she, like, she wanted me in my, in her life and she wanted to create space for that. So she'd actually done a lot of work prior to us getting back together um, so that that could happen. So Mm -hmm. I think, I think you just have to be really um, mindful about the space that you hold for somebody to step into. Um, And then they might not ever step into it, but I think that, that's what your job is, is to, is to try to create that space. And then, I don't know, it's, it's such a, a difficult thing because if, cause there's, there's so many, like, um, like me and my aunt, uh, we, you know, she says the wrong thing sometimes. And I do too. Like she's, uh, like I'm trans and I recently came out as trans and started going by Bonnie Violet, like within about the last year or so, she's the only person in my family that I've talked to about it. She's the only person in my direct family that calls me by my name, you know, and for a while she didn't, uh, she would mix up old name and new name. And I was able to talk with her about it and tell her how important it is to me for her to see me that way. You know, it was really important also for her to see me as a child of a God and a, a child that was worthy and like just as awesome as she was for God, I guess. And for her God, not like for my own, I don't know, for whatever reason, that was really important for me. And I think because I know that we can start to have conversations and we can say the wrong things and still be in relationship with one another because we're connected at the heart. I know that she sees me as a child of God 
within her own understanding. She's not trying to change me. She's trying to understand me. And, but by us being in relationship with one another, we are changing, but we're not trying to change one another. Um, and I think being able to affirm that as much as you can is, is I think helpful and to be honest and vulnerable when things don't, I don't know, when something causes a little tension or a little friction to be able to talk about that. One of the things that I, if you're somebody who is trying to be in relationship with someone who represents or has been somebody that's harmed you and they're in a space of wanting to, to be better with you and you really trust that they're, that's what they want to, I try to assume the, the best of the person I didn't realize how much I assumed the worst in her. And I've gone to the place where now, you know, cause I used to assume that she was trying to convert me. She was trying to change me. And now I can, if I'm feeling a certain way, I can be like, I can assume the, the best and say, no, if she loves you. She wasn't sending you that or saying that to hurt you. Maybe I just need to communicate more so that she understand, you know, I take it as, she doesn't, she doesn't understand yet, or I haven't communicated myself well enough for her to know that when you say these things or you do these things, they bring up these other things for me. So I think um, assuming the best, and once you've made that commitment with somebody to, I don't know, it's, 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 it's work, um, but it's not like it's, it's been so easy. And like I said, my aunt is like my favorite person in the world right now. She is like my spiritual guru. She's like that person that I would maybe direct somebody to, to go to, you know, I learn a lot from her relationship with her God. That is not mine. Well, her understanding of God, that is not mine. Um, and, and that's, but I still learn a lot from her, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. Is that... <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I very much relate to that. And I think that there, there are a lot of people who, like your aunt, will be open to going on that journey with, with these people who might be wanting to share this with, this message with them and, and be pleasantly surprised. Um, we are at time, believe it or not. And so I have two final questions that I ask everybody on this podcast. The first one is, what is the best sex or relationship advice that you have ever received? The best sexual advice I've ever received. Sex or, or relationship. relationship. Sex or relationship advice. I don't know that nothing really comes to mind for me, but I know that a lot of people come to me for sex and relationship advice. And I always have to preface it as like, I'm single. <laughs> uh, I've had lots of relationships. Yes. And I've had lots of sex. Um, but I don't know that I'm the best person. Like I can listen and I can hear what you're going through and I can share my experience with you. Um, so I think that's for me, I think the best time, the best message I've gotten from anyone is when they can just share their experience. Um, with their own sex and relationships. And then I can find myself maybe in parts of that and then kind of, you know what I mean? I think that's helpful because my experience is not their experience. However, I'm going to hear my experience in theirs. Um, 
because that's how I, that's how I see and hear things. So, um, I find that really helpful. Um, yeah. I love that. I love that. I think that's a very good answer. Um, lastly, people are going to listen to this and be like, oh my gosh, how do I connect with the queer chaplain, the amazing Bonnie Violet? So how do they connect with you? Yeah. Um, so I can be found, uh, by, uh, at a queer chaplain, um, on Twitch, uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Um, and so I think that's probably the best place to find me is at a queer chaplain. Um, I have a couple of podcasts. One is the one with my aunt, Splintered Grace. The other is just my, a queer chaplain. I interview drag artists and trans folks. I'm working on a series called Trans Spiritual, where I'll be interviewing trans folks, lacing their narrative with a spiritual thread. Um, yeah, um, I think that's, I have a Patreon too, if people want to support my work. I, I quit my job back in August to kind of focus on this ministry and just do what feels like needs to be done. And, um, the God's providing, of course, um, that found, that sounds so (laughs) I've become one of those people. Uh, but yeah, (laughs) I'm taken care of. (laughs) Yes. No, I love that. Right. And if, if there are people who are listening to us and again, they're they're like, yes, I want to find faith to me. If they're like, you know what I miss tithing, Tithe Bonnie Violet. This is your new way to, you know, support support ministry. I love um, Quakers frame it as if somebody takes on ministry full time instead of doing other kinds of pay work. They call it released for ministry, right? Mm-hmm. So that you would need financial support to do that. So I think that's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today and having this really important, profound conversation. I know so many people are going to connect with it and I appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening, Curious Queeros. Join us next month for an all new episode. Until then, stay safe, love yourself, and remember to be the change you want to see in the world. Asking for a Friend is a Spectrum South podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Laura McGuire. This podcast is produced by Danny Benoit. Keep up with the latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and at SpectrumSouth.com. For sneak peeks and to submit your questions or suggestions for future guests, follow Spectrum South on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.